This is The Point, professional investing in Australia with Pendle. Welcome to The Point podcast from Pendle. The outbreak of COVID in some of China's largest cities and Beijing's determination to follow a COVID zero tolerance policy has left many investors wondering what the prognosis is for the world's second largest economy. Can it achieve its stated goal of 5.5% growth? What's China doing about the outbreaks? What's it mean for the global economy? To help us find the answers, I welcome back Amy Shearpatrick, Head of Income Strategies at Pendle Group. Amy, welcome back to The Point. Hello, Sean. Thanks for having me. We all know that growth has been slowing in China with recent headlines about large cities like Shanghai going into lockdown. Just how bad is the growth picture over there now compared to previous swings in China? It's pretty bad, Sean. So if we look at some of the recent years, China's done a fair bit to self-engineer various levels of slowdown as well. In 2017, they had a big deleveraging campaign, which resulted in a slowdown that was quite material. The slowdown that we're experiencing currently in China is worse than that. Then subsequently, you had Trump waging trade wars on China, which led to another episode of material economic activity slowdown in China. Again, what we're seeing right now is worse than that. In fact, when you look at some of the leading indicators that we observe for China on growth, we're now currently at levels that were last seen, quite frankly, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in March and April of 2020. Okay, so this sounds like they'll be falling shy of their 5.5% growth target for this year. And I think the consensus is that that is the case. What policy tools are at Beijing's disposal and what do you think they'll actually do? Great question. So I think the policy tools are many. What's easiest for them to turn to is what they've always done in the past, which is to allow a lot of credit stimulus to get into the economy. And typically they enter through the channels of property. So another real estate boom and through infrastructure. Often in the past, this has led to, you know, roads to nowhere, a lot of high-speed rail that is in excess of what the country needs. What you're seeing this time around, though, is because they've pursued such a painful path of tightening up on the property sector, it's unlikely that they stimulate that way this time around. At the margin, they are easing some of the restrictions on that sector. But you are likely to see more in the way of infrastructure. And the good news is that the equity markets have recently been paying attention the real estate and infrastructure sectors of the index have been outperforming the broader equity markets in China, which means that the market experts there seem to think that the stimulus is at least counting for something. The other policy tools that we might be more used to in the West is monetary policy. Cutting interest rates usually seems to work for most of our economies in the West, but China is slightly different. And you could argue that lowering interest rates in this environment where cities and economic activity are effectively locked down by the zero COVID policy and also the powers that be in Beijing are averse to starting another property bubble, there is very little that the lowering of interest rates can really do. People won't borrow because they can't produce anything. They can't do anything. They can't go to work. Mm. So the last lever really is effects policy. And you have seen some loosening on that. The renminbi has weakened quite materially over the last week. And I think Beijing will continue to look at the likes of what's going on in their key competitor markets, such as Japan and Korea, where they have allowed more material currency depreciation this year. 
But what's important to note is that of all these policy tools, none of them really are your silver bullet. None of them will engender a recovery of the magnitude that we saw in the recovery from COVID or the recovery from the previous down cycles that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Is there a silver bullet? Well, we've spoken about this before, Sean. The silver bullet is really reversing this zero tolerance to COVID, as you mentioned. You know, a, a large part of why we're here now and why the economic situation continues to deteriorate is that they simply won't step back from this zero COVID policy, which most of us in the rest of the world have long since abandoned and have moved to living with COVID. So, so why does China stick to a zero COVID strategy when the rest of the world's moved on? There are many reasons in China. First of all, for practicality's sake, they don't have an effective mRNA vaccine themselves, and they are unwilling at this stage to import them from the West. There are also inadequate health systems, and the recent high death rates that you've seen with the spread of Omicron in Hong Kong point to a potential hundreds of thousands of death toll should they suddenly abandon the zero COVID strategy. But it's also because this year is a highly politically sensitive year in China. There are lots of top posts within the official seats that are up for grabs, and they only come up for grabs once every decade. And so for a lot of political leaders in China, the path of least regret is to continue with what has worked so far to avoid a rising death toll from this virus. So I understand that, but surely they must be thinking about it. I mean, is there a situation where if COVID does get out of hand and it looks to be the case, then they actually have to consider dropping uh, zero COVID strategy? You're absolutely right, Sean, and that's the most counterintuitive thing, really. When you consider that the main reason politically right now for pursuing zero COVID is to not have social unrest from allowing the health situation to deteriorate, but the social unrest can come the other way from economic hardship. You know, a lot of Chinese households have been living under this sort of zero COVID framework for now their third year. They're tired, their savings are drained. And if this wave of COVID spreads more quickly, it will lead to a picture where a lot of local governments almost compete in the severity of their lockdowns. You get a spike in unemployment rates. Social unrest would rise because of economic discontent. And as a result, you will find the political pressure building for these politicians who currently are fans of zero COVID, and you will see a faster pivot towards living with COVID. So that is the counterintuitive thing here. Okay, so let's bring that back to the investment picture. What's the Chinese growth picture mean for the global economy and then specifically for fixed income investing? This is a really interesting juncture for what China means for both global growth and for fixed income investing. What we've discussed with the Chinese picture today is largely about the downside. It's about the growth picture. Growth is slowing. And the old adage that when China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold is still very much alive. This kind of growth slowdown in China will ultimately impact the rest of the world. And the reason we've all been sheltered from it so far is because our comeback from COVID, thanks to a lot of fiscal stimulus around the world, has helped to buffer some of these headwinds coming out of mm. China. But the other side of the picture that we need to be cognizant of, at least in the short term, is that these 
lockdown measures are leading once again to bottlenecks in supply chains and the logistics. You hear of stories of hundreds of vessels being docked outside of Shanghai waiting to unload. And because of the lockdown restrictions and capacity constraints with labor, they are unable to unload. So with the rest of the world, we're still worried about how high inflation will go, when inflation will peak. And unfortunately, for the time being, inflationary pressures are going to be added to as long as Chinese lockdowns continue to intensify. And those opposing forces mean different things for fixed income. Slowing growth should mean that bonds have their heyday again. But in the near term, I think it's difficult to say that, you know, this is the turning point in bond yields because inflation is still a worry. Okay, so if I want to invest my money in fixed income, what sort of fixed income portfolio should I be looking at? Well, because of the the conflicting forces that are exerted by the China story right now, you need to decide, first of all, which of these forces will win out overall. I think ultimately, if the growth situation in China gets materially worse, which isn't our base case, then fixed income portfolios that look a lot like equities portfolios that have a lot of credit and high yield in them will fare poorly. But if you are concerned about the growth picture and you're willing, once again, to dip your toe back into purer fixed income portfolios that rely much more heavily on that duration lever, then those portfolios will be more reliable at delivering a defensive performance profile if the worst scenario eventuates out of the Chinese story. Amy, thank you for talking to The Point. You're welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me. That was Amy Shearpatrick, Head of Income Strategies at Pendle. I'm Sean Aylmer, and you've been listening to The Point.